Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Hey everyone, this is Scott, your host. In following my own voice that calls to adventure, I recently traveled to the kingdom of Bhutan, the land of the Thunder Dragon and the last Shangri-La. Bhutan is a mystical and magical place high in the Himalayas, and it's known for its breathtaking nature, ecology, spirituality, and the happiness of its people. It's the only carbon negative country in the world, and it's known as one of the happiest places on earth. I joined Paralympic gold medalist Karen Dark on this journey, along with eight others, and it was the trip of a lifetime. The show you're about to hear is just one of a three-part series on Bhutan. In the first episode, we'll cover a recap of the trip from the participants' point of view and the transformations that took place. In part two, we'll dive deeper into the spirituality of Buddhism in Bhutan with His Holiness Kedrup Rinpoche, a reincarnated master. And in part three, we'll learn about the Bhutanese concept of gross national happiness used as a filter for governing through a focus on the happiness of the people over economics. I hope you'll join me for all three of these enlightening conversations. This is episode three of the series. Welcome to the show. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today we are going to talk about the Bhutanese concept of gross national happiness, a term promulgated by His Majesty Jigme Singye Wangchuk, the fourth king, as he questioned gross domestic product as the measurement system for happiness and well-being. Our group had a chance to experience the happiness of Bhutanese people directly. We also had the privilege of visiting the Gross National Happiness Center as part of our trip. Today, Karen Dark joins me as co-host, and we are lucky to have with us Shoning Dorji with My Bhutan, the tour operator for our trip. Shoning was born and raised in Bhutan, but has spent a good part of her life outside of the country, having attended boarding school from eighth grade. She loved traveling back to her home country to learn about the history and the culture of the kingdom that she fears is at risk of being lost to the sands of time. Shoning joined My Bhutan earlier this year, which has given her even more opportunity to explore the Bhutanese culture and people. Her unique experience both in and out of the country has given her a broader perspective about gross national happiness. It's on the ground results, and how it shows up in the lives of the people. I'm so excited for Shoning to give shape to this abstract concept that we can all surely learn from. Now, this is kind of an exciting day. It's a kind of a first here on this podcast because we've got three different time zones covered. It's 5.30 a.m. here in Charlotte, North Carolina. We've got Karen in Scotland where it's 10.30 in the morning. And Shoning joins us at the end of her day at 4.30 p.m. So this is this is kind of cool. Shoning, Karen, welcome to the campfire, my friends. Thanks, Scott. Good to be here. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me here. So, Karen, um, maybe you want to start us off with our with our questions here for Shoning so we can dive into this incredible topic. 
Yeah, so happiness is a topic that I've been fascinated by for years. For example, there is a study done which shows that if someone wins the lottery, and if somebody is paralyzed, that one year later, the impact on their happiness is not at all. So it really goes to show that external conditions don't really impact our happiness. Whatever happens to us has a temporary effect. And then we go back to a kind of baseline level that we had before the, that, that event. So when I I've known about Bhutan for many decades, but when I realized that there was a this concept of gross national happiness instead of gross national product, I got more and more fascinated by it, which is a big reason that led us to come to Bhutan in search of inner gold. And so, yeah, maybe you can give us a bit more insight around how gross national happiness, what it is and how it kind of works in Bhutan. Okay, thank you. Um, so gross national happiness was a term that was uh, developed by His Majesty the Fourth King. It basically means that in a country we value and prioritize gross national happiness over gross national product. And we use that as a measurement to kind of track the development of our nation. So that's where development with values comes in. Um, so a lot of the policies that are made within the country, and this is, um, and I just want to preface all of this by saying I'm no expert. I didn't formally study gross national happiness in any way. So all of this is just my personal take, having um, been born and raised in the country and then traveled back and having, um, again, found my roots. Um, so this whole idea of development with values, um, I think it's, uh, to track and make sure that every policy that's passed by the government um, passes through this lens of gross national happiness, which ensures that, um, because we, I think we are aware that gross national product by itself might not necessarily meet the holistic needs of a person in their life. So that's when we have development with values and all of this coming in. And when these policies that pass through and support GNH come into play, then we're hoping that that will, in essence, address those needs that national um, gross national product does not. So just as a general intro into gross national policy, uh, gross national happiness and policy making. Yeah. And I want to jump in real quick because, you know, my primary career here in the U.S. is is in real estate. And when we talk about development with values, I just think that's such a such a cool concept because we're not saying in Bhutan that there is no development and, and you know, that businesses, that there's anything wrong with it or evil. It's just that we add this element of values and that's such an important piece to, to development. And so, you know, development is a huge part of, of the real estate business, of course. And so. Yeah, the development of values piece. I don't know if you, if you could add anything more on that in terms of, of how it relates to business. I think it's uh, how it relates to business. Well, I guess I'm not much of a business person, but I think in terms of if for usual businesses, if you make the customer happy, then you have recurring customers. And then you have this kind of ecosystem going on where you're happy to provide the service. They're happy to receive it. And it's just a very nice environment to kind of, it's a place to thrive in basically. And I guess there's a, it could be comparable to what's happening here uh, where it's creating this environment where when we say development with values, um, when it trickles down to sort of like the roots, like the actual ground level, how that um, kind of manifests, it's uh, manifests is that it create, creates freedom for the people. Like I can live my life the way I want um, it's also 
I guess this ties into a lot with why we revere our leaders so much and our authority figures as well, just because they create this kind of environment for us we, where they treat us without discrimination. It's almost like how a parent would treat a child, you know? There's no discrimination between your children. Your children are your children. Um, no matter if they do good, they do bad, one does better than the other, they're all your children, you treat them fairly. So it creates this kind of ecosystem where people can thrive and they have the freedom of creating and shaping their lives the way they would like. So if I'm a father, I would want to decide to send my daughter to this place or if she wants to do this, the government doesn't intrude on that. In fact, it creates an ecosystem where decisions like that can um, be encouraged and supported by the government policies. Yeah, I'll never forget the during our visit to Bhutan, we went to the Gross National Happiness Center and in the presentation there, there was a slide with a quote by, I think by the king saying, if a government doesn't exist to enhance the happiness of, of its people, then you know what is the point in it existing? And it just really struck me as a wonderful base value to start from. And actually, I was really lucky this week to come across a British leader, um, Richard Maynard, who started an organization here called Action for Happiness with the same principle. And it's just, it made, it felt, it really warmed my heart to realize that we do have something similar in Britain. It's just not embedded in the culture quite as deeply as it is in Bhutan. So I know from our visit to the, to the center, there are four pillars and nine domains of happiness. Could you, do you know about them enough to give us a little overview of what those are? Yeah, I, I can give you a little bit of like an overview. Well, I can give you my take if that's all right. Um, so the four pillars um, and the nine domains are used as tools by the policymakers. So if you actually go down to like a farmer in a village and you're like, okay, what is DNH and what are the pillars and the domains? They wouldn't really know because why would they need to know? It, it's not relevant to them. So these, I view them more as tools used by the policymakers, more like indicators um, to try to track to see whether they're in line with the goal of GNH, which is development with values. Um, and in that sense, they use these um, while they're passing policies. And, and a little bit about how these policies come to pass is that almost all of the development programs and policies that are um, planned, I guess, in Bhutan, they happen starting from the ground level up. So for example, we have 205 gewoks, which are like these smaller, I guess, um, classifications under districts. So if you enter Bhutan as a kingdom, we have the 20 districts and under each district, they'll have a specific number of gewoks. So there would be like smaller sub-districts. Um, and then each gewok would basically have a planning process where they would have these plans that they kind of try to develop for their long-term strategy, like five-year plan. A lot of them happen in five-year intervals, these plans, um, and they would approach their community. So it would be a very collaborative process. So it's not just the leaders going like, okay, we need this, we need that. So they would try to listen to the community and um, try to hear about the issues that they're facing and then work those into the strategy plan. And then after that level, it would go up to the district level where again, they would kind of review all of these, the geoks that fall under them they would review these plans. And again, it's a collaborative process. So then they would go to their community and say, okay, what do you think of this? And then again, it would go up to a higher level where it, eventually it would end up in like the national assembly where all of the main policies for the country are passed. So in that way, I think it's a very forward approach to how we're planning uh, our strategies for the entire nation. Um, and at each level, um, we have these specialists who are trained in gross national happiness, and they use these pillars and these domains, so these tools that they have, 
they use them um, to kind of try to gauge whether the policies that are being passed are being passed in line with the goals of gross national happiness. And if they are being passed, so that's what it means to go through the lens, to go through the filter of gross national happiness. Because I understand that online, you might find a lot about gross national happiness, but it seems abstract when you're done by it. There isn't really anything tangible for you to say, okay, this is it full stop. So, so that's what it means to pass through the lens of gross national happiness. They're actually checking at each level of the planning process, whether the strategies being passed are in line with gross national happiness and will benefit the entire community basically collectively and not just specific individuals or groups. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. This podcast is a passion project for me because I absolutely love adventure. And it's thanks to the effort of my residential real estate team here in Charlotte, North Carolina, that many of you know as the W Realty Group, that this podcast gets funded. This awesome group of people have unmatched levels of competence and caring for our clients. If you know of anyone looking to buy or sell a home, our team serves the Charlotte, North Carolina market, but we can also help you find an agent anywhere throughout the US or Canada through our highly connected network. When you support our real estate business, you are also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for your referrals. It sounds like it really starts from the bottom up as well, instead of coming from the top down. Really, yeah, in those, in those what are the regions called? The regions within the regions? Gazas. Georgs. Georgs. So yeah. it's spelled E-E-W-O-G-S. It's like a crazy spelling, but it's pronounced Georg. And, and so um, I know that we had an experience in Bhutan of feeling that people genuinely were so attentive to our happiness and our happiness. If they knew we were happy, it made them happy. And that relates to concepts of, of happiness in research and science around how kindness really impacts our physiology and, and our neurochemistry to make us feel better. But I'm, you know, maybe you could describe because you've lived outside of Bhutan as well. How do you think, um, or how do you experience happiness in Bhutan in daily life? Like, how do you find the people? Do you really think they're happier? Like, what's what's it like? So, I think a lot of um, the way we interact with each other in Bhutan and a lot of our attitudes in Bhutan it stems from what I would call like our core cultural um, beliefs or values. And a lot of that, I think, I personally feel comes from the fact that we are a very strong Buddhist people, community, and we've always been that way. And in Buddhism, we're always taught to treat each other with kindness. Um, and in specifically, like for example, every prayer we have starts with this one line, um, and the line, I, I can't recite the prayer, but the line basically, it means that um, whoever that person is, because we sort of believe in the idea of rebirth and reincarnation. So the cyclical life cycle. So we believe that that person, that sentient being that we're interacting with in one of their lives, they could have been our parent. So that idea of how we treat and that attitude towards how we treat people that we interact with, I think it stems mainly from that concept. Because even as children, when I was young, I remember growing up and it being very instilled in me, not just like in a formal educational sense, but just everywhere. It was just culturally, I was just taking it in through osmosis <laughs> to describe it in the way. 
um, where people would just say, respect your elders, treat everyone with kindness, don't be mean to animals as well. And I guess this is like a crazy example that just kind of um, I just kind of th thought of. But during the lockdown, His Majesty the King actually um, declared that no animal should go hungry because we were just there were no people on the streets, so all of these stray dogs were just going hungry. So people actually the military and the reserve military they started taking up shifts to cook food specifically for the stray dogs so that they wouldn't go hungry. So I think this is like a great example of basically these this one specific core cultural value or belief, I guess. And I think that has a lot to do with how we treat and interact with the people around us, if that makes sense. I think that's a really, really cool point. It's, you know, I think it, it's more um, like visceral for me because like having been there, we saw um, the, the stray dogs and the animals that are that are kind of like living together with the people like when you're walking down the street, you know, you'll see like horses walking up the street and and cows walking up the street and dogs everywhere. So that that's that was really cool. I appreciate you sharing that. And if you notice, Scott, um, with dogs, I, I'm a big fan of dogs. I love dogs and um, they protect their bellies most of the time. So especially because that's their most vulnerable part, I guess. So then when they're feeling threatened, they usually cover their bellies and they sleep. But in Bhutan, a lot of the stray dogs, they sleep with their bellies exposed, which just shows how safe they feel. And in our belief, we also um, we like to think that if it's a place where animals come to frequently and they thrive and they're happy there, then that is akin to like a paradise, basically. I love that so much. I took a lot of pictures of the dogs um, mm -hmm. while we were there. So I'll be sure to post a couple of, of uh, dog pictures in the show notes. So the dogs are happy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. um, those principles that run beneath everything, the Buddhist principles of kindness seem to me that they really impact happiness. I suppose there are other elements I really noticed in Bhutan as well, though, the attention to nature and the, the fact that I think by government constitution, 70% or more of the country is protected um, and covered in trees. And just the general integration of nature, spirituality, and commitment to all of these different aspects, it's like really the holistic approach that struck me about Bhutan. Um, and I think that makes us very in intrigued, but how do you perceive that they connect to gross national happiness? So, Again, going back to our core cultural beliefs and our core cultural values, I think that um, although now we have like modern names for it, like environmental conservation and preservation, this closeness, this relationship that Bhutanese people have with our environment, it's actually a very old practice. Because Bhutanese people, if you look, and I guess this also again goes back to how we are a Buddhist people, a very strong Buddhist community. And through that, we also believe that all sentient beings in all life, and even like the mountains, for example, the mountains are abodes of mountain spirits that dwell beneath the earth. And we believe that in streams reside the Nagas and the spirits of the stream that also dwell beneath the earth. And we believe that the streams that erupt like through the mountains are gifts that they give us. So we have these beliefs that are woven very deeply into our everyday life, just like how our practice of, because if you ask a Bhutanese person if they're religious, they'll say no, most probably. But if you ask them if they practice Buddhism, you'll see that they practice it almost every day. From the day we're born to the day we die, 
we it's so interwoven into our daily lives and everything that we do these beliefs they're so steeped in them so because of that we've always had this closeness and respect for nature and our environment and like i said although now it has i think a more modern term to it which is the conservation preservation part of it i believe personally that that practice within our community has always existed um, since ancient times way before my great 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 grandfather's time even this is so cool shoning i'm curious i know you you actually just recently got back from some travel um where you kind of got to see a little bit more of the countryside experience some of the people so i guess i'm curious like on just on the ground like how do you see this whole idea of gross national happiness impacting the people and you know maybe even some stories of 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 what you've seen across the country and, and how this is impacting the people I am actually, I don't know if you should have asked me about my travels. I don't know if I can stop talking about it. <laughs> I'm going to be able to stop talking about it. It was just an amazing trip, actually. Just, uh, and I, I hope it's okay if I give a little bit of context to the trip. Please. Um, so I was going into this. I, we had a client of ours, and he was coming in from Ireland, actually. He's, uh, he does ANPM studios, studios in Ireland. He wanted to make like a short film. And um, he was just this one guy, and it was kind of a passion project of his. So he felt a calling to Bhutan, as most of us here can relate. Um, and then he made his way here, and I kind of tagged along to help him. I went into it thinking it was just going to be this regular work trip. And then just from the first interview itself, I remember the first interview I joined him for, we were in Chimil Hakang, that area. Um, and we were in the village surrounding Chimil Hakang, Sopsoka. And we agreed to film there because we talked about how everyone who comes to that area only covers like the monastery and the divine madman but no one really tries to um, explore how all of that international exposure has affected the lives of the villagers in that area so we thought that would be really interesting to cover and we spoke with this girl who was about 16 and she was just brilliant and she's from and her village is pretty rural but she told us she wanted to either be the prime minister or she wanted to be a poet. <laughs> and just, she was talking about how she's like top of her class and and she was this she, amazing, uh, we were just kind of blown away by her. Um, and a lot of her education and all of that, again, like talking about the ground results of JNH, all of the education in Bhutan is free. So to be able to just like I said, again, creating that environment for students like this to thrive and creating an unbiased environment. Because even though she's a girl, as long as she performs well in her studies, she can achieve as much as her male peers. In that sense, that freedom, what I was talking about before, to live your life the way you want, according to your abilities. And that's just one example. I remember there was, um, and there are, just warning, there are a couple sad ones in here. <laughs> so there was one we covered towards the end about this young man. Um, he is about 26 now, and he's been studying six years in the traditional art school. So that's where they learn wood carving and all of the different traditional arts. He's from a place, a district in the east called Mongar. And basically, he was talking about how he loves to study. And that's something that I saw was a common thread between all of the young adults we interviewed. They all had this passion to learn and to be a student specifically. And he had this passion to learn, but unfortunately he was with a single mother. It was uh, himself and his brother. 
and his mother unfortunately was diagnosed with cervical cancer mm -hmm. so he had a really difficult time but he was able to take his mother to bangalore in india for treatment um, and that was courtesy of the free healthcare scheme that the government has again one of the schemes that are in line with gnh policies right so he has a lot of gratitude because he said that without that treatment his mother would have just suffered and they, of course, didn't have the money, the exposure, the connections to get her the treatment that she needs. But she's also a human being and she deserves the best treatment that she can get, you know. So in that situation, to put it bluntly, he was saying he's very grateful for everything the government did. He also said he struggled a lot with communication and he had wished that he had gotten the opportunity to study English more <clears throat> in school. Um, but then he said that after and unfortunately it did not go into remission for his mother but uh, much later in life he's looking back on this and he says that he's very grateful because he has the opportunity to become a student again and that was one of the dreams he had that he thought he would never be able to see it come to the light of day and he was saying that the government basically the traditional art school that we go to it's uh, one of uh, it's one of the government institutions and they offer free scholarships, like full-ride scholarships for these um, individuals, very talented individuals to come forth and learn our traditional arts and crafts. So he's a student again, and he's so grateful to the government for giving him this opportunity. So kind of going into the ground results, I realized that because truth be told, initially when I remember the first time I heard of GNH, I was really young and I couldn't grasp exactly what it was because all of the information I could find about it online were very abstract concepts to me. And I just couldn't understand, even as a Bhutanese, how it would relate. But growing older now and being able to, being fortunate enough to get the exposure and meet people from my own country who've experienced life in a way that's very different from mine, drastically different, um, I think it made me realize that it does make a difference, all of these policies. It's not just like a tagline um, for the country. There's actually some substance and meat behind it. So little stories like these, you know. Shelling, one of the things listening to those stories reminds, just resonates with me thinking about how, where we put our focus and where people around us put their focus really impacts where our thoughts go and then our thoughts affect how we feel and how we feel affects what we do and that affects our reality. So when we're in an environment which is talking about happiness, which is focused on that, then I, I feel like we're naturally going to end up moving more towards that direction because, you know, one thing as human beings that we all need is purpose, autonomy, that freedom to explore and be who we are, but also support and those supportive environments and it feels and sounds like Bhutan really brings those things together in the most wonderful way. I guess it's not called the last Shangri-La for nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think um, Bhutan isn't perfect as well. You know, we have our own issues that we face with development, um, especially, I think, with rapid development, being a country that was isolated for so long. Um, and then we open our doors and the development just sort of rushed in and we've been accelerating rapidly over the last few years. Um, I think we face issues that any other society with um, that are going through modernization face, basically. Like we have issues with mental health and we have lifestyle issues, health issues. And even, and I guess this goes back to one of the stories 
um, and for the interviews that we did. Uh, she was this young woman who was a very accomplished architect. Um, and she she was basically, we asked her, um, what do you think, how do you think it's different now compared to when you grew up? And just to paraphrase a little bit of what she said, she said that um, it's different because our community now, I feel like I'm living next to strangers compared to during my, the time of my grandparents because everyone in the community knew each other. So just this kind of the social fabric is changing and we do have our issues. So um, we're not perfect in that sense, but I think um, what I love about my country is that we're trying <laughs> and it seems to be a collective effort. One thing I, I find like just kind of like tying a couple of different things that you said together. And, um, you know, I guess I'm just curious, like how all of these things play in, but like, when I, you know, being from the United States and kind of thinking about like how, how sort of we live here, like I, I look at things like materialism and spirituality, but also one thing that like was very apparent when we were there was that like there was a very clear respect for authority, for elders, for the religious leaders, for the, the royal family. Um, and I just, I'm just kind of, I'm curious. I mean, the other thing too that, that we noticed was you know, in the United States, there's just marketing messages everywhere. And that wasn't the case in Bhutan. I mean, all the businesses seem to have the same sort of sign, um, the same kind of text on their sign. And, and, you know, there's no, there are no billboards, you know, we didn't see any sort of marketing messages as we were driving through the cities. And I just was curious how, how you feel like that all kind of ties back to gross national happiness. I think, um, a lot with gross national happiness is also that, again, going back to the core cultural values that we have, I think gross national happiness itself is like a manifestation of these values and these beliefs. Um, and just talking about the respect, because I'm sure you must have also seen that although in lieu of ad advertising and billboards, we have a lot of photos of the royal family. <laughs> when we have a lot of, um, we call them Cooper so we have a lot of these portraits of the royal family and his majesty and their majesties. Um, and that I think reverence comes from, and I know that this isn't, I realize this isn't always the case in other places, but at least in my country, it comes from like a genuine place, just because again, going back to our beliefs about how we should treat other individuals and other sentient beings, not just because of the connection we could have shared in the past or the connection we might share in the future, but also because, like I said, tying into the GNH a little bit more, they've it's through they've treated us with the kind of care and love that a parent would treat a child, and that's the kind of leaders we've been fortunate to have, especially with the Wangchu Dynasty and our kings, just because they've kind of looked out for the country in a way that's completely selfless, um, and evidently so, and obviously so for everyone kind of looking in. Um, with the decisions they've made, the strategy that they've come up with, the freedom that they've given their people. Um, and like I said, creating this environment, like, and I guess this is uh, going into a little bit about a, a, a personal story, I guess, but my my mother as well, um, they are, they didn't come from a very well-off family, but it was using education, the education that the government provided for free, that they were able to break out of that cycle and achieve a better standard of life. You know, so just giving the people these opportunities and they were all girls and they were able to compete at par with their male counterparts. So this kind of environment where if you 
can build it with your own two hands, then that's a life you can build, like anything you can build with your own two hands. Um, so I think that's why we have this genuine respect and reverence for specifically the royal family and also in general authority figures because we know that they will treat us, we trust them. We know they will treat us in a way that they would treat their own children and look out for us in that same manner. And, and, and when you talk about treating people, I want to like reflect back because there was a, actually a really a conversation that I had with you on the last night of our trip that just has, has stayed with me the whole time. You might not even remember, but it has to do with like how people are treated. And, you know, to me, it was a conversation about acceptance and forgiveness because um, you were talking about sort of, um, you know, in the, in the West and the U.S., like the stigma that comes with uh, being incarcerated for a crime. Right. And you talked about like what that's like in Bhutan and how and I wonder if you could kind of maybe <laughs> help me recreate that story for the listeners. Um, do you remember that conversation? I do. That that last night was very sentimental. I'll, I I still remember. Um, so yeah, it was basically about I think treating people and approaching them with. Well, I guess I I'm flashing back to like sixth grade English right now, but there was this one line laying bare your human heart. Um, so it's basically approaching people with that same sentiment. You approach mm -hmm. them and you lay bare your human heart because. As a fellow human being, I look at you and I understand you have your struggles. I mean, life isn't easy for anyone, really. Even the people who are billionaires and millionaires and they don't have to worry about a roof over their head or food on their table, they'll still have problems in their lives. And those problems to them are just as important as a man who doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. So to kind of approach people on that this human level, like the most basic essence of like what it means to be human and it means to be alive and that struggle to be alive. Um, I think that's where this um, lack of judgment comes from. So even with, and I think basically the story was, I had joked with you and I was saying that um, I feel like when people come out of prison as well here, um, the person who sees them, they're like, oh my gosh, when did you get out? You should come over for dinner. Like it's, it's been so long. It's like they went for like a holiday or something. <laughs> but in that way, it's, I feel like there isn't, as much stigma and it helps the other person as well that kindness because i don't know if you've had these experiences but having now i'm like 25 years of age and i feel like super old sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> just because having gone through some moments where i'm like wow like that was that was just like a it was one of those bookmark in my life kind of moments mm -hmm. um and just seeing like Sometimes when you need kindness the most is like when you'd least expect it mm. out of other people. And I think that goes for people who are incarcerated for like a specific example. I mean, you know you've done something wrong and you feel very bad. You've kind of, and everyone knows it. So you're going into this situation, interacting with people and you expect the worst basically, right? And then for the other person to be like, it's so good to see you. Like it's been ages. Like, have you been eating properly? Like come, come over, like I'll feed you. And that kindness, I think it just... Because I feel like going through life, sometimes these walls kind of like, it's like wax that's cooling down. You know, we have these barriers that form without us realizing over time. And I feel like just actions and moments like this just completely pierce through those barriers and it lays bare your human heart in that sense. So it keeps you, keeps you soft in a world that continually forces you to become hard, if that makes sense. Shani, it reminds me last year I was in a taxi and the taxi driver told me a story of someone who'd become his best friend 
and it was a guy who'd got in the back of the taxi, held a knife to the back of the taxi driver's neck and wanted all of his money. And he said to him, well, you can have all of my money, but how are you going to feel if you've, if you've done this? Is, you know, this is going to be on you. Um, and they, they ended up working through that in the, in the drive and became best of friends and still are 20 years later. And it was just such a beautiful story that reminds us exactly what you just said, that that connection of human heart and no judgment and mutual respect and seeing how we go through phases of pain and that we need support and help through those can really transform our yeah. communities in the world, really. Can you just imagine if everyone had these moments where they expected the worst from people, but they received in return the best? And it just completely like, wow, that like blew my mind. I should, it inspires them to do better, you know? So Shoning, what, um, you know, we understand this is that this is a concept and, and it's working and there is an impact across the country and, and we saw it. And, you know, you've shared stories about, um, the, how the people have, have affected it. But we also understand that, of course, there are also challenges to this concept of, of gross national happiness. So, so what are some of the challenges that Bhutan faces right now regarding, the, regarding happiness? Well, in terms of development, I think some of the issues that we're facing, like any other nation, um, would be, of course, with modernization, like I said, the social fabric is kind of, social fabric and framework is changing of our society. Before, we used to have many generations living under the same roof. And now that's taken a shift more towards a nuclear compact family. Um, so just small things like this. And this does affect everyday life because traditionally, a multi-generational family in the same house would help each other. Like the grandparents would look after the children. The young children would go to school. People who could work would work. So it used to work that entire setting. So now that's changing increasingly. We also have, of course, as people become more absorbed with technology and modernization and just exposure, global exposure, I feel that there's also a pressure, like a societal pressure to maintain a certain standard of life or to maintain a certain lifestyle. Just realistically, these are like the ground realities. And also, like so many other ways, like, like little lifestyle changes, like we have lifestyle conditions now, like diabetes that weren't really an issue before when people were mainly working in the fields or, you know, exercising a lot every day. So like every other nation, we have similar issues that we face. Um, but I think, I think in a way that what makes us different is that we're so aware of the impermanence of life, in a sense, like every Bhutanese person knows that from the day you're born, you're one step closer to the day you die, and then everyone dies at some point. It's just an accepted fact of life. We don't shield our children from it. It's not considered morbid. It's just an accepted part of life, you know, and then you're reborn and then the cycle restarts. So in that sense, I feel like people are able to let go of short-term material gain in order to collectively work towards long-term um, lasting good for the community. I think it's a world we all aspire to, to live in. Yeah. One that's maybe simpler brings us back to those fundamental values that really make a difference and keep us connected and keep us nurtured. And despite all the ups and downs and the challenges of life, we, we, we've got that sense of community and connection and support and maybe a little bit less individualistic than our modern world has become. What you said actually just reminded me of something that Bhutanese people say, and it was something that I was feeling right now in the moment. Um, if I could share, I, I was thinking, I feel so blessed 
having this conversation with you guys again, it just reaffirms everything. I feel so blessed to be born a Bhutanese. And it's something that a lot of Bhutanese people say, actually. It just sprouted up out of nowhere one day, and it's something that people say often. And I think it's also because, like I said, with the exposure, we also realize that not all leaders are good. So we feel extremely fortunate to be in this country where we have this special relationship with our environment. Our leaders are trying to genuinely take care of us like they would family members. That that goes beyond what we can expect, actually, from leaders, people who are not really family, but then they treat us the same. And just thinking about all of these is something that... Uh, the sense of gratitude. It's also something I have towards the two of you for making time to have this conversation with me today. And then just also um, talking a little bit about the prayers that we were saying um, in Bhutan. I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys, um, but part of our prayers, and this has to go with how we want to treat the rest of the world and our community as well. Um, we have this prayer where we say, um, may all of the merit or the good karma that I accumulate be distributed equally among all sentient beings, uh, those who couldn't be here, uh, those who were too young, too old, too sick, or got lost in the way. So let all of the good merit that I accumulate in my life be divided equally among all of all of them. So just to encompass, I guess, kind of um, this attitude we have towards life in general. Jenny, I think you've just summed up beautifully some of the core elements that we've all got to learn from Bhutan just by being you and sharing these stories and expressing how you feel to be here and and how you approach each day and the prayers that you have yeah wonderful <laughs> I, love, I love that so much and and it, and it you know I think one of the things about this trip I think for the whole group there was this sense as we came from western culture and most of us you know we were the US US Canada and Europe and I think we all felt this deep sense of what can we learn from Bhutan and what can we bring back to the people of our communities. And, and so I, I would love to just get your thoughts on what, what, what advice and what lessons would you impart on the people of the West? Like, what can we learn from what you all are doing in Bhutan and, and how can we bring that more into our daily lives? I would say that... Um... Like thinking about the reason why the three of us are here today, like happiness. We're here to talk about um, gross national happiness or happiness in general. And I feel that happiness is a universal concept. It's not something that's exclusive to Bhutan. And even when we think about people who want happiness, that's not something that's exclusive to Bhutan, like a feeling that's exclusive to Bhutan. But like I mentioned, I think the difference is that we have leaders who are aware and they're very conscious of trying to incorporate ways um, and steps to make that a reality for the people. And a lot of these policies trying to take a holistic approach to people's wellness and their needs, and not just in terms of material product or revenue or, uh, or money, basically, essentially. Um, so I think in that sense, and even looking now at the trends just globally, a lot more people seem to be inclined towards um, spirituality or, you know, <clears throat> going, uh, having policies that don't go against nature, not abusing the earth so much. Um, just looking at these trends, just globally, I feel like people are getting there. And maybe that's an indication that we're doing something right. Like when we talk about climate change, right, for example, um, we talked a little bit about the relationship that Bhutanese people share with nature and our environment. 
Um, we're the only carbon negative country in the world, but our country is so small, it can only do so much. Mm. Um, but then, you know, just kind of uh, going about nurturing um, that idea of giving to nature and having it give back to you. A lot of people talk about how beautiful it is to be in Bhutan, but then I genuinely feel it's all of the good nature and energy and care that we're giving to the environment. It's giving back to us and it's protected us. I genuinely feel it's protected my homeland for centuries and centuries now. Um, and, you know, just these small things like environmental conservation um, and we, like, for example, the pillars, the tools and the indicators that we have, just taking a look at those and trying to maybe take a step forward, trying just trying, I guess, <laughs> you know, the initiatives there. And to also just reach out and be a kinder person, a good person. And it's, in essence, I think, like, this is a prayer that I say for myself. Um, I say it very often, every chance that I get. I pray um, to all of the spirits and the gods and the deities to guide me because they have a divine sight that I don't have and they can see things that I can't. So I pray for them to remove the obstacles from my path so that they can guide me to become a person who can benefit all sentient beings. So it's not a very prayer specific to me. It's just, I hope you guide me to become a better person. So I feel that it's not just on the leaders, you know, it's just everyone. As long as we all harbor good intentions and motivation towards change, I think good things are in store for everyone. Wow, that's so, so perfectly said. <laughs> Thank you so much. So Shoning, um, how can people learn more about gross national happiness? For myself as well, I feel like just really intensely in the past month, I've learned so much about gross national happiness. I've worked on a couple of projects um, and then specifically wow. with the travels that I went through recently. Uh, I'm sorry if you can hear my dogs barking in the background. Um, and just, I think I would call it a blessing that I got this opportunity to travel. Um, and just a blessing, just because it was trust upon me. Like I said, I went into it kind of ambivalent about the whole thing, thinking it's a work situation with travel and stuff. But just traveling and getting to meet the people um, from different walks of life, like I said, I felt so blessed myself because I knew that I came from, I'm, I'm very privileged from where I come from. Um, and it really opened my eyes, I think. And just taking the shot. So I would say, I do have to say thank you to my Bhutan Bo and um, ANPM, just because they were able to facilitate this whole travel. And I think it's a lot of it was the people that we worked with, like at both organizations. Um, so I would say, like for me, I didn't expect it and it turned out great. So if you, if anyone out there is like looking for a sign, because I had those moments sometimes where I'm like, just give me a sign. <laughs> if I should go or not. So if you're contemplating Bhutan and you have it on your radar, then please do join us here. I think you would have a fantastic time. And I think my Bhutan would be very happy to help. They did such yeah. an amazing job for us and put together such an incredible experience. I think after this whole trip, my whole thing has been that um, people should come in as guests, but they should leave as friends. So that's been my whole approach now to everything. So yeah, please well, do join us. Mission accomplished for us. Thank you. It's through all of the, I have an adventure spirit. And whenever I go on an adventure and get out of that little comfort zone or the silos we can be in when we're just in our own little life, in our own little world, it's there that we do have these encounters with people. And I think a reminder of the, the strength of human spirit, the kindness in people. And it's often the people who have less that give more. And 
I think travel for me and those adventures are just such a wonderful way to be reminded of what matters and those values. So huge thank you to you for giving us that experience and leaving us as friends after Bhutan. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank, thank you guys both for spending some time here this morning. This was a great conversation and uh, a great start to my day. I'm ready to get going here. This is amazing. And, and for those listening, I hope that you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope that Shoning's stories about gross national happiness have encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thanks for listening. Karen, Shoning, thank you guys both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.